Hello and welcome to our podcast, Pretty for an Aboriginal. I'm Nikki Louie. And I'm Miranda Tapsell. And we're here to talk about all the things this country has trouble talking about. Like relationships, sex, dating, being a total boss, weight and most difficult of all, race. That's how you inspire a generation is that they feel empowered to lead. These kids are experts of technology and of connection. Okay, let's start. Ready to get to it, Tapsel? I am. am. <laughs> In this episode, we've invited Serene Carson Fox onto the show. And Serene is like us. She's about our age. She's an artist. She works in the media. She's really hot. So she's definitely like me. Yeah. <laughs> and no, she's also an advocate for her people and her community. She's a really important voice. Serene, welcome to our podcast, Pretty for an Aboriginal. Thank you so much for talking to us. Hey, sis. Jamie, good for having me. Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been told that you were like pretty for an Aboriginal or, or pretty for, you know, a native Canadian or, you know, one of those kind of disclaimer kind of compliments that are really not a compliment? Absolutely. Um, and I think for me, because, uh, well, I'm Canadian, so I'm a two-tone native. I have like my winter tone and my summer tone. So it depends on the season. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel that. Um, I, I have uh, pretty light eyes. I'm the only one in my family. And the thing I get most often is this like, oh, but, you know, your eyes, like your eyes are really pretty. They're really light do you have and I usually interrupt at that point and I'm like oh are you asking if my eyes are white do I have white in me because they that's what they want to say yeah instead they say oh you can't those eyes can't be indigenous right and it's just like such a backwards compliment and I think it's it's more funny when you can call them on it where you can be like oh what were you trying to say this (laughs) yeah I know right I like it when people are like oh so um like are both your parents aboriginal yeah. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, so is your dad really your dad or like, <laughs> you know, like how would you like it if I started like questioning your entire family history um, just, you know, within like the first few minutes of meeting you? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. And, you know, like I do actually have a little bit of Irish in me, but I, I you have to squeeze me to get it out when you start it like that because I just think it's such a ridiculous disclaimer to start. A conversation with any human being. <laughs> oh, totally. Well, um, my my dad is really dark, and um, he looks like that kind of archetype of you know what a Aboriginal person kind of looks like in the media in Australia. But he's he's quite dark, and so whenever people ask him, you know, kind of like oh, and they go oh yeah, and they always call him like brother or something, mm-hmm. and they're like oh yeah, brother. So like, where are you? You know, like where where are you from? And my dad always says that he's white and from Ireland. Because, like, his grandfather is, like, white and Irish. So my dad just, like, kind of says that to just kind of mess with them a little bit. Yeah. And and it's it's really it's really funny that, like, I have English, Irish and Czech from my dad's side. So my dad is not Indigenous. But, like, you know, the awkward conversation comes up of how Aboriginal I am. And um, as I'm sure you're aware and... I'm sure an aspect of that has happened in your own country, but Aboriginal people were um, measured by their Aboriginality to how well they could assimilate into society. And there's this term called half-caste. And, um, and so 
I kept getting called that, but it's actually like a really negative term here in Australia. Like we don't like it being used. And it, and it's often people kind of measure my love for my dad for like not kind of saying that I'm English, Irish and Czech. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. And, you know, it's so – it blows my mind how similar everything is, like how similar the, the colonial patterns are because we have the same kind of um, word, but it's not half-past, it's half-breed. Same thing. You know, and it depends on who you talk to, but for most people, I, identity is such a huge uh, conversation in community, and it's something that has been used against us, you know, like even how we identify other members of our community – I think that influence of even thinking that we should step in and say, what makes you Aboriginal? It's such a complex issue. You know, I find I find myself in this internal dialogue all the time, like you have no right to ask. And yet there's all of this conversation about protocol and who can sort of claim Indigenous identity. It's like, it's so complex. Yeah, I, I get what you mean like that. Like, I don't know... Um... Like I'm assuming I'm going to like, but when you assume you make an ass out of you and me um, about, you know, like in Canada, you like the nations and the tribes that you're from. So in Australia, we have this thing about, you know, I'm, and I I even have it in like my bio and it's this idea, like I'm a Gomorrah and Torres Strait Islander woman. But then I kind of, you know, I wonder, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, like what, what do I actually, like why, what do I actually mean when I claim that? Because they didn't grow up on like Gamori land. I didn't grow up in the Torres Strait. Like I have family ties from there. But what am I actually, like what is the purpose of me claiming that in today's world in relation to my cultural identity? Like is it a way of validating? Because those tribes would have changed over time anyways. Well, I think for me in Canada, I think, the reason why a lot of those things haven't been questioned is, you know, we claim our identity because we are holding on to our territories and what's left, you know. And I, I wonder in the future what those things will look like when maybe we are not so, we're not still fighting for our land, we're not still fighting for our culture and holding on that when it, a moment of safety comes in, if that'll change, if it'll migrate into something else, you know. Because I really do feel like protocol needs to exist so strongly because we're just holding on to the reclamation on this side anyways. I think I claim my Larrakia and Tiwi ancestry so strongly is because I constantly got asked in primary school if I spoke Aboriginal and that's why I kind of like to claim mine as well so that people know that there are just there's not just one Aboriginal voice there's not just one Aboriginal ideal. Do you also think it's because you know like colonization is capitalism is corporization you know it's where we are now right and that is a value system that places kind of you know rich white cis male hetero dudes at the very top of the pyramid yeah, and yeah. just automatically as, you know, Aboriginal women, like the moment I realised I could never be like a rich white guy, mm. you know, like it was automatically freeing because it kind of gave me all of this room to move. So do you think there's something just by the fact that we're just never going to be the epitome of success within this kind of colonial culture? 
Yeah, and I think maybe now the young people are kind of owning that. Like, I think legit, if you ask some of the influencers on, you know, social media, young young people, they would say, no, I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be an indigenous person, and that means that I want to be in this category that is completely undefined, that they are creating. There, There's a platform of indigenous young people on social media that I think is unique and totally its own because it is rooted on connection and advocacy and protection. Yeah. And they created it on their own. Yeah, they've like built their own space. What was your yeah. tipping point? Like when did you, did you grow up within this, you know, like you're like a amazing advocate and like your voice like that you've managed to, you know, as an artist that you kind of, you've, you're, you're so public and present. Like yeah. did you, was that something, was there like a moment in your life where you kind of went or is it like this is what I need to do or has it just always been there? I think my need to process the world and everything about navigating the world as an Indigenous person was always a response with art. That's always how I've navigated the world. Mm. Um, but because I was a dancer for the first you know, 15 years of my life extensively, I think it was always through the body, through storytelling. And I think advocacy was just something that I grew up with. It was in a responsibility that my mom instilled in us. And, but I think my public work is in response to knowing that my dance platform, my art platform, in some way this moment that we're in requires words. It requires action and explanation. And um, it was just serendipitous, I think, that Viceland was creating this um, series right in the moment where my my creative work was finding more words and theater and acting. And so I think um, I was lucky to be able to combine my sort of artistic voice with an advocacy role. I think, you know, you, you really do have to acknowledge that sometimes there's this perfect moment and the right people with the right intentions that creates magic that really can cut through. And, and, and I think the platform creates something that really can educate and has the potential to reach. And I think as an, an Indigenous person, that was a big deal. Yeah, totally. I completely understand that because that's how I got into writing was through for just trying to, like I went to an international school in Canada and it uh -huh. over in um, Vancouver Island called Lester B. Pearson, United World College of the Pacific. Um, or if you're like, you know, Bogan Aussie like me, <laughs> United World College of the Pacific. Um, and then, um, but yeah, and there was like about 200 kids from about 88 different countries. And I was just like little Aboriginal girl from, you know, Mount Druitt in Sydney which is like a kind of, you know, lower socioeconomic area. And I was trying to explain what Aboriginal people in Australia were. And the only way I could do that was through writing a play. And I'm like a big believer in the personal is political. Um, so yeah. looking at that and you saying like you dancer and, and your career now, and you know that you are so successful as a dancer, actor, creator, how do you balance your solo success with your community success oh man that's a great question uh i think for me i really realized that these last couple of years that there is a pressure right now um from my community and i think i have 
it might actually just be all from myself, but I feel like I have a responsibility to protect the the last sort of contributions of our elders because some of our storytellers, our language keepers, our song carriers, they are elders and I feel like this is this very special and sacred moment. So I really have to juggle um, the time that I take to do any any personal work. And so it's been two years and I go back um, into a full dance tour schedule in September. Um, and to be honest, I just, I'm so excited and thrilled because um, I think what I've learned is that it's not one or the other. It's that you really do have to just dive into all of it because it, um, yeah, I'm very, very aware that my my dance is going to heal all of the uh, complicated stuff that happens that you carry when you're working in the front lines for extended amounts of time. Have you ever found that, or do you ever like worry that your political voice? You know, and I, I think it's really, you know, well, this is the con- this way the conversation's always framed to me, and and I find it problematic. But you know that your your political voice and this that your you know that that advocacy is an inherent part to your identity as you know an Aboriginal person. Has that ever does that impact on your professional life at all, or like that has affected opportunity, or that it's you know skewed your professional life a certain way? Absolutely, um, and I think that it's a conversation that I. I'm having more and more because I'm I'm a dual citizen, you know. I yeah. have always worked in the United States and Canada, and I'm always wondering if one day will be the day that something will come up at the border, you know. Or there's been lots of artists who have have had that happen to them, and so I just and and it would be no for no reason other than your political alignments and your willingness to speak out. Um, but I've also been really lucky and. I'm a spokesperson for a brand here called Manitoba Mucklucks, and they have quite a big following. And so the way that I've been able to, like, navigate and play with sort of um, industry and social norms and how I align myself, like, I just I just make really uh, clear standards that I want to work with Indigenous positive companies and platforms that contribute to the community. And if there are people who do not want to get down with um, my voice and I probably aren't, I'm not really down with them anyways, but yeah, I'm sure it has all kinds of implications that I'm not even aware of, but I can't think about it because I'm indigenous and this is, this is life. And I don't think that we can afford to be silenced any longer. And so I'm, everything comes with consequences, but these ones are worth stomaching. And was that the, the Manitoba mutlock? How do you say that? Manitoba Mucklucks, yeah. What are they? <laughs> <laughs> so they're um, Appleton's and Mucklucks. Um, it's an Indigenous company, and they're pretty badass because they're one of the first Indigenous-run companies that have been really successful here and in the United States and now starting to be around the world. But um, they are moccasins, and the Mucklucks are the ones for the cold. So they're our traditional boots, and they put a real soul on them so you can wear them in the city. And so my whole vibe is the way that you combat appropriation and the way that you teach about your um, community and your background doesn't always have to be through this just like 
talk, talk, talk. I feel like it has to be done on every level. So through art, fashion, music, identity. And um, I think my whole goal is to inspire young people. So I feel like when I roll out wearing beadwork that was made by my auntie and people from the community and footwear that's from an indigenous company that supports the community and, you know, ribbon spirit, that's when I feel the most proud and, and that's how I can do the work. It's just like community, community, community. Oh my God, oh you're, my like, goodness. you're like an ethical Kardashian. <laughs> you're like an ethical yeah, like, native like, Canadian Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to do some online shopping. <laughs> Well, me too. What is your favorite? Is there like an Aboriginal brand or like collective or? Yes, there's this amazing jewelry line called House of Dizzy. They do all these like amazing earrings, and they like yeah. they do like fashion shows in Australia. And yeah, they're and they're pretty, pretty deadly. They're pretty, yeah, they're pretty badass. Oh, you're pretty so good at wearing them, Miranda. I do. I wear them a lot, but I also want to buy um, that T-shirt from Beyond Buckskin. Um, uh, Native Americans discovered Christopher Columbus. Oh my goodness, I love this one. Yes, <laughs> I want that shirt so bad. So that's probably going to be my next purchase. <laughs> yeah, so good. Yeah, see what I mean? Like we're taking over every every corner. You know, I really like saturation, indigenous like power. I love it. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Native so, Hawaiians should do one saying like we ate Captain Cook. <laughs> oh, the did, they, or did they kill him? <laughs> So we're talking about like these huge narratives that have like these consequences that have like existed, you know, for, you know, since the beginning of kind of like invasion and colonisation around the world. Um, and it makes me think of like in the doco that you did with Vice and SBF, you met this 16-year-old yeah. Apache girl called uh, Nailene Pike. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Nailene yeah. Pike. When's her nosy's granddaughter? Yeah, and so along with her, yeah, her grandfather uh, is the spokesperson of a protest uh, against Rio Tinto and the Australian-British mm -hmm. Mining Company, uh, and she's trying to protect the oak flats from a massive copper mine, something we're pretty familiar about here in Australia. And and she's only 16 and she's coming, you know, she's having to, uh, you know, kind of fight these and unpick these narratives and these issues that have just been around forever. Well, how, how are young people so brave? Like how is that? This 16-year-old girl is so courageous. Because I think that when you're young and your perspective hasn't, you're so still so connected to the land and to the hope for a future, I think for her, like what, what really shifted it for her is that that's the place that they perform their coming-of-age ceremonies. And she had her coming-of-age ceremony. And I think in her life, to imagine that her younger sister even and her children and her children's children would never have access to that sacred place. That is enough for her to even, you know, you see in the documentary to put her life on the line. Yeah. And she says it's because that is what's right. And I think that that you see that when you grow up with your culture, when you grow up, being allowed to express yourself, you know, in your own way. So that's, Naylin has been brought up with her ceremonies and, you know, with this idea that who she is is good and powerful. And I think we are witnessing 
young people who are now, maybe for the first time in a long time, reclaiming that space, and they're powerful. So much of the the narrative right now about young people is that they don't have the attention span, and, and you know, everything is fast and fast, but yeah, they're fast. They want action. When it's like, right now, let's do it. Well, those kids were like, okay, we can do it right now. And I think that's also powerful and, and shouldn't be, you know, underestimated. That's how you inspire a generation is that they feel empowered to lead. And these kids are experts of technology and of connection. How do you... Uh take care of yourself? How do you keep that fight going? Because I get, I worry about, you know, I worry about my younger cousins because they are massive warriors. They're, they're intelligent. They're strong. They've gotten themselves like, um, an education in the Western world. So they've got their feet in two worlds, but they still get intimidated. People still, shut them down and they feel less than they are. And so what would, what do you say to your younger native brothers and sisters when they've got to get through a day? Yeah, man. So I think, you know, just like it comes down to this cheesy thing. It's like, no matter how you say it, you can try and brush it off, but like love and kindness are the only way that we are going to come back to who we are. And I think that's what was taken away from us is the, the ability to be kind to one each other, one another and to love one another because this idea that we always had to fight, like we've been in fight or flight for so long. And yeah. with our young people and our suicide rates, I like I the only thing I know that I can do is just to offer love like unconditional love and support for our young people. So even when I'm on the front lines and everything seems like a constant uphill battle, I think I just have to remember. And when I can't remember for myself, like someone just walking up and, you know, being with you and being like, hey, how are you? And checking in, those are, that's love. You know, we've been taught to uh, belittle all of those small interactions, but I think just reaching out and, reaching your arms out to your community, especially if you're, like right now, what's going on in Australia and the sort of anger and sadness. I think it's really important to extend your arms forward and backwards and make make sure that you're holding on to the community, you know? Yeah, most definitely. Like I've, yeah. I do this thing where I like will send a message to uh, like I made a real conscious effort in the last couple of years to just kind of try and be there, especially for like Aboriginal women, you know, yeah. and like women, Aboriginal women my age, because, you know, I saw the kind of stuff I would get sent online and then seeing that happen to your peers. And sometimes it's this thing where if someone is just even recognizing, you know, that you may not be feeling okay, can be a godsend. Um, but yeah. in Australia, we've kind of like, I think there's been a real, you know, with, you know, with the net, um, there's been a shift in things, especially, you know, through arts um, in creating space for uh, Aboriginal, I think like like the Aboriginal diaspora and especially I think, you know, enabling mm. younger people to kind of have a voice or help them, you know, build their platform. Um, what's kind of erupted though is a little bit of like a, how do I put this, how do I put this delicately, um, like a generation war 
not war, but like an intra-community kind of argument where you have maybe older people who are maybe more conservative invalidating a lot of the voices of, you know, younger Aboriginal people. Um, and in particular, like a lot of young Aboriginal women. And I think mm. this is because a lot of young Aboriginal women are, are, are leading the fight like personally and, and they're like, you know, m- more of a, they're, they're an easier target because they're the most vulnerable women. And it kind of reminded me something from your doco. There was a comment from Naylene's grandfather, Wensler Noy Senior, and he said he thinks it may take a woman to lead a fight, to lead the fight. So like, do you think that young women are starting to lead the fight? Because I see that definitely within Australia. I think mm, that, you know, that because like Aboriginal women have been so vulnerable, they, they're also kind of the most powerful in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I, every single community that I went to for Rise, it is young women who are leading the fight. And even if it's not young women who are the visible front line, it's young women who are one step behind, who are controlling all of the, all of the narratives. So, you know, I think, I think colonization attacked that part of a lot of indigenous culture. Um, we were matriarchal. Yeah. Um, and had very important roles. And I think we just haven't seen that. And I think for us, for Anishinaabe people, that's part of the prophecies is that when the women, the women would start to lead. And I, as a woman, feel like we, it's in response to the whole idea of life being threatened, not just for Indigenous people, but physical life. They attack on the environment um, and Mm. consumerism and what is going on around the world. I think women are inherently the holders of life. And so we'll be the ones, I think, who have to stand up and protect that. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come speak to us. Uh, I think we we were going to ask you one more thing. Yeah, one more thing that we ask all of our guests. When did you first realise that your race mattered? Um, Early. So I think it was grade one um, and there was a Indian haters club. And there was only one member. So then it turned into the Serene Haters Club. So... That was pretty early. So I think, and that wasn't because I was a silent uh, brown young person. You know, I had to go to school in the city. And so that was because I was an outspoken young indigenous kid. So, you know, in the way that my mom inspired me to go to school and be like, hi, I'm in Way. My name is Morningstar Woman. Like, the the same reason that I got targeted. So I think I was very aware from a very young age. Well, it was very painful, but also I was aware that that was something you have to keep sacred. Yeah. And how did you, like, what happened to the club? Like, how did you deal with that? So my mom came in and did a workshop that her and I talk about it now, and she says it made things better. I have a, a perception that it made things a little worse at first, but she may be right that it got better. Mm. Um, but she came in and did a ceremony, mm. and, and her response was, well, these kids just don't know who you are. And everyone is afraid of things that they don't know about. So we went and did the ceremony, and I think I had a couple of close friends, but that sort of idea that I was other lasted throughout all of 
elementary school. Um, and because I was a dance kid, you know, I had the, I was lucky that I got to be away from school a lot. And, and my mom was pretty adamant about taking me on the road with her for ceremony. So I missed quite a bit of school. So that was sort of my saving grace was I, I didn't have to engage all of the time, but I definitely clung to my best friend was the darkest kid in the school, you know, and she was black and I was native and together we were cool. So I think there was that dynamic also. I love that. I love that. Solidarity. And if you guys were like around today, like if you were your age today, you'd have like probably an off the charts Tumblr or Insta or something. Our hashtag would just be the black fist and the brown fist. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thanks for, uh, for being so woke. Okay, so <laughs> but, so you I, know, as hard as that stuff was, I wouldn't change it because that's the fuel. Totally. It's what you makes know, you. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what it is. It makes it makes you it it keeps that that strength within you, that fire, you know, that you know that you have a purpose, you know that you have a place and you're deserving of a space. Yeah, yeah. And then you you fight for it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Serene. Thank you so much. Take right, care, guys. sis. Keep thank fighting. You so much. Be good. Bye. Okay, bye. Okay, so I just realized. Yeah. Uh, this this myth about the uh, native Hawaiians, also known as you know most. You know, not not native Hawaiians. There are Kanaka Maoli. Uh, my pronunciation could be really bad, but uh, they. It's a myth that they ate Captain Cook. It's actually kind of a racist myth. So I shouldn't have said it. Taps. But in my defence, it wasn't based on racist urban legend. It's just that I personally, you know, think I'd rather be kind of a poetic justice. You know, that Captain mm. Cook, given all the kind of genocide he caused, all the black fellas he killed in Australia with the last name Cook, it would have been, I don't know, like a good way for him to go. Just personally, <laughs> wishful thinking rather well, than racism, I would say. Well, you know, it just, I, I get it. It came out of frustration of colonisation, like where it all began. Yeah. He, and he's the one that started it, so he so, can just go away. Yeah, it's meant to be about the stuff that's difficult to talk about, so. Well, it is. You know. And people are, like, you know, people are very uncomfortable, so. Mm-hmm. Imagine how comfortable blackfellas were when yeah, Captain exactly. Cook arrived. Hey, yeah, anyways. exactly. We'll be back next week, but until then, tell your friends about us. You can find us on Twitter. I'm Miss Miranda Tapp. And I'm Nakia Louie. Uh, you can find our podcast on iTunes and all good podcast apps. Yes, leave us a review. We read them. And don't forget, you're pretty. For, For an, an Aboriginal. Aboriginal. Pretty for an Aboriginal is hosted and developed by Nikia Louie and Miranda Tapsell, produced and edited by Nicola Harvey and Simon Nippard from Audiocraft. A big thanks to our supporter, Road Microphones, and BuzzFeed's director of audio, Eleanor Keegan, and the entire BuzzFeed podcast team. This is a BuzzFeed Australia production. Bye. Bye. Bye.